Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Not a good week for Stephen Gilbo, the environment and climate change minister. Not a good, not, not a good week. Not a good week for the, uh, the minister. He started it off uh, in Montreal speaking to a conference. By the way, it's going to be a busy show today. We have all sorts of material for you that I, I know you'll enjoy. But Gilbo told a Montreal conference that the federal government will provide zero funding for any new road or highway infrastructure construction. His exact words, quoted by reporters covering the conference, were, there will be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network. Quote, end quote. So if I can set aside the, uh, that app, what's it called? Oh, yeah, Rife Scam. If I can set aside the idea of envelopes going along with that app development, which went from $80,000 to over $60 million, there will be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge road networks said the minister. He also told the Montreal conference that uh, the Trudeau government intends to move Canadians out of our cars and trucks and into high-density urban development. Did we ask for that? Did I miss something? And now Gilbo insists that he didn't say what everyone heard him say about no more money for new road or highway construction. And then he jumped on the bicycle and started pedaling furiously and said, it should have been more clear. I guess. Because he was pretty clear to Premier Ford and Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith. Stephen Gibbon needs to understand that he lost. He put together a bill that was found to be unconstitutional. It's illegal. And the court told them they had to rewrite it. And part of the reason it was unconstitutional and illegal is because they did silly things like uh, 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 come into our jurisdiction and tell us what projects we, we could and could not build, including there was a line in there that any road that was longer than 75 kilometers needed federal, federal approval. Well, the Supreme Court has found that to be unconstitutional and illegal. 75 kilometers. So if the province of Alberta wants to construct a road that's longer than 75 kilometers, first of all, there'll be no federal money, they don't need it. But if it's longer than 75 kilometers, they have to get the approval of Mr. Gilbeau and his ministry. You know, on the streets, they'd say, dude, but we're not on the street. There was another issue that dogged Mr. Gilbo, and we'll get into that in the next half hour. But I'll just tell you briefly, in Parliament, he spoke, and we have the clip. We'll play it for you. In Parliament, he got up and he said words to the effect that our good friends, Sylvain Charlebois, the uh, professor from Dalhousie University, the agri-foods lab professor, had in fact said, in Ottawa, at a hearing, that there was no connection between the carbon tax. Can you get it ready, Tom? I don't want to hear it. I'm just, I'll, let's play in a couple of seconds. Let me just finish this. He, he said that, uh, that, that Mr. Uh, Charlebois, Professor Charlebois, had said there was no connection 
between the carbon tax and uh, an increased food prices. Have a listen. I would like to remind the colleague opposite that in the Ag Committee uh, last week, uh, one of Canada's foremost experts on food policy, Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, said, and I, and I quote, and I quote, Madam Speaker, we don't see the evidence of that, talking about the impact of carbon pricing on food in Canada. He, and, he, he, and actually, they invited him to speak at the Ag Committee, Madam Speaker, so I think we have it here. Except, Sylvain Charlebois put on X or on Twitter, he wrote this, I'm aware Minister Gilbo mentioned in the House of Commons this week that I stated the carbon tax has no impact on food prices. That's not accurate. We have said, and for a while now, that based on available data, we cannot measure the effects of the carbon tax on food retail prices. So it's not a, not a good week. Absolutely not a good week for Mr. Gilbert. In fact, it's not a good week for the for the federal government, for the liberal government. They are staring into the abyss as far as voter confidence is concerned. We'll get into that with abacus polling a little later on the program. Not a good week. Oh, when it comes to the carbon tax, by the way, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business released this, otherwise sitting on $2.5 billion in carbon tax rebates owed to small business since 2019. $2.5 billion owed to small business in this country in carbon tax rebates, and they have no plan and no method to return the money. Not a good week. What else do we have here? Well, let's, let's, just, let's bring in our first guest, who uh, is probably chomping at the bit to get going here. Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. I like a lot of other people, though, uh, maybe not so fine when it comes to uh, uh, you know how many controversies and how many how much difficulty this government can create in the lives of ordinary Canadians. And uh, no amount of changing names and words uh, is going to change. Uh, I think the widening widening perception in this country, Roy, that you've touched on that uh, things are uh, not well in the state of Canada. Uh, Dan, how can you were in government for 18 years? How can you get so many things so wrong in such a short period of time when you've been the environment minister since Mr. Trudeau recruited you personally in Montreal? And that was a couple of years ago. Well, anyone who's done any deep study into Stephen Guibault will know uh, he's quite the radical. Um, yes, he's an avowed socialist. He said so in the House of Commons, but he's also one of these guys that said uh, years ago, no more, no more roads, no vehicles, no advertising for automotive uh, you know, industry, no new subdivisions being built. You have to live one on top of the other in, in downtown regions of this country. Uh, he loved the 15-minute cities. So what he has said here is no you know, <laughs> misspeak or... Uh, as some uh, in our friends in the media are trying to suggest that it was a faux pas, anyone who knows Stephen Gibo knows the credentials and that he is very much an activist and he is he is damn determined. If he were prime minister tomorrow, these things would already be on their way. But I think for a lot of Canadians, you know, if some in our friends and the journalists have not done a deep dive on Mr. Gibo's background, I'm prepared to do that. I have lots of information on him. 
then perhaps they will have to consider what he's really talking about. Because this is a guy who has single-handedly attacked our number one producing sector, revenue generator, the oil and gas sector. He's hemmed in manufacturing. He's going after agriculture. He's going after the uh, electricity industry. He's going after the housing industry. Uh, Now he wants to go after the transportation infrastructure. Roy, in 1993, I was elected as a young, budding liberal member of parliament under a leader named Jean Chrétien, who said we need to build infrastructure. And we will, in fact, go into debt to build roads and infrastructure that Canadians need to help grow our economy and to help accommodate the 3.5% increase in our population every year. These guys have it backwards, uh, but it's not by accident, not a slip of the tongue. It is a very deliberate net zero policy. And make no mistake, this is uh, really the tip of the iceberg. These guys have a plan. The plan is not one that takes into consideration our standard of living or the realities about our uh, increasing population and our needs for energy. Okay, so now we've all, I've often said, Dan, it's been one of my favorite phrases, don't say to me today what you don't want me to play back for you tomorrow. <laughs> and that's happened. Well, as a, and, and Premier yeah. McGinty, when he was Premier of Ontario, and I did a regional show in Ontario, he ran into that, where he actually said something to me earlier in the same segment, and I played it back for him, and it didn't exactly... Uh, correlate to what he had just said, like minutes later. However, so now we have Mr. Gilbo saying, well, I never said, (laughs) I never said there'll be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network. Of course, I never said that. And, 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 or, or maybe I misspoke. I didn't mean to say that, but he's also, Dan, as you know, he's now hinting, and I've spoken with Premier Moe and Premier Smith from Saskatchewan and Alberta, respectively, quite a few times on this program about the issue of Gilbo and his energy policies by 2035, and they've been very outspoken about Gilbo. Gilbo's now hinting at changes to be announced concerning his energy dictates for provinces because the polling numbers are terrible. Let's start with the the clean fuel regulation, Mr. Uh, Trudeau's government is bringing forward. Have you said that it's broadly regressive, quote, end quote, and its price increase for gasoline and diesel will, by the time it's fully implemented in 2030, be more hurtful to lower income households in Canada? Yes, because that's the definition of regressive. It means that it has a proportionally bigger impact on lower income households. And that's exactly what the clean fuel regulations will do. I have so many clips from uh, Mr. Well, not, I don't have any clips from Gilbo, but I have so many clips from other people who've spoken about his initiatives and his policies. That, of course, was Yves Giroux, the parliamentary budget officer, on this program on the clean fuel regulations. That's another beauty. Yep. And, uh, and, and we know that... Uh, uh, when I was speaking with Mr. Gilbo, um, not Mr. Gilbo, with uh, with uh, Yves Giroux, uh, I, I said to him, "So, where did you get the information? You remember this uh, the, this this uh, conversation, folks? You, you got the information on the report about the clean fuel standard harming the least capable of paying the fees, people in this country. You got them from the Environment Ministry. Yes, he did." But it was the environment ministry and the minister who jumped all over Mr. Giroux for having issued the report based on what they gave him. I mean, it's, it's hard to just keep this straight and, and talk about it. 
1-877-399-9898 is our text line. Canada's total use, that's from Ontario. Canada's total use of oil is equivalent to the volume of a child's crib, 93 cubic feet, burning per second, in a country 4,000 by 3,000 miles. Not the cause of climate change, many other causes. Dan McTagg, um, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, is with us. Let's, uh, let's get Mark on the line from Delta, British Columbia. How are you, Mark? Okay, Roy. Uh, how are you? Always uh, nice to listen to you. Thank you. Where do I begin here? I'll, I'll be very No, quick. I don't know. Where do you begin? I spoke to my mom last week. I see her every second week. Her and her best friend came from England to Canada, 1958, and she said to me, Vancouver used to be such a wonderful place. It's not so wonderful now. Um, I was born in Vancouver. I live in the outskirts. It's just one thing after another. Like, what are we to do? Like, You're talking about the fuel cost? The fuel cost, uh, the, the war on fossil fuels. How on earth is Canada going to pay off its debt without fossil fuels? Well, let's turn this over to Mark. Don't go away. Let's talk to Dan McTagg for 18 years, a member of parliament, liberal member of parliament in the Jean Chrétien government. And he dealt with the issue of fossil fuels and, and gasoline and, and, and diesel and oil and electricity. Dan, how do you answer that question for Mark? Well, he's correct. Uh, and Vancouver, uh, the, uh, British Columbia, poster boy in terms of uh, carbon taxes, not just the first one uh, on fuel, uh, which, of course, is, as we know, 16 cents a litre in the province, another 17 cents a litre for uh, the clean fuel standard uh, regulation, the BCLCFS, the, the long word for British Columbia low carbon fuel standard, been around for several years. That's adding uh, 17 cents a litre plus GST. And then you have TransLink taxes. Look, there's no secret. The governments of British Columbia and of all stripes have said, we want people out of their vehicles. We want people to uh, be punished uh, for using hydrocarbons, the very thing in which the entire economy of the world is premised and for which we've seen over the past few years is critical in terms of establishing and maintaining our standard of living. And guess what? We do it damn clean here in this country, relatively speaking. Yeah, but, we do. Uh, you know, for a government like British Columbia, which use every tool in the box to kill the clean, the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, which is almost open, and costing you and I as taxpayers thirty billion bucks because the federal liberals would not stand up to their own regulations, which said that that company, Kinder Morgan, had the right to build it, and you cannot block it. We are now on the hook because of high, you know of political hijinks. So, what do we do with the actors who engage? In well, let's do this, Dan. Morgan, Dan, let's do this. The, uh, governorship. Let, let's give uh, let's give Mark a few more seconds before we break yeah. for the half hour, Mark. Well, we'll just, I mean, got so many things to say. Um, okay, you don't want people driving. Well, why are you promoting electric vehicles? People yeah. don't Well, he's not so hot on electric vehicles anymore as of Monday. He said they're not the, they're not the full solution. Not driving. Well, I, I mean, I don't even know. Because <laughs> people aren't buying them. Mark, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much from Delta, British Columbia. We'll be taking more of, of your calls. Let, let's get Debbie on the line. Dan is staying with us. We'll take some calls. From you at 1-800-263-2428. And your impression of what you've heard. I don't want you to do an impression of Gilbo, unless you want to. But uh, what you've heard from our environment minister, just in the last few days, Debbie's been holding on in Parkland County, Alberta, for some time. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks for your patience. What do you, what do you want to say? Well, thank you, Roy, for being the voice of reason for Canada. Um, I just, I am, you know, like many Albertans and such out here, is that, and I'm sure across Canada, 
um, are really kind of concerned with regards to the position that Stephen is in as our environmental minister and sort of the delusional thinking that he seems to think. Uh, I think the one thing is that rebranding um, the carbon tax and um, and stating things, he must think Canadians are are just like we're all kind of daft. And, and I think that sort of narcissism and, and on his part is incredibly concerning. I've had by chance probably six or seven meetings with people, strangers, and, and it is on everybody's radar, the concerns with regards to the carbon tax, his comments, um, the, the transitioning. I'm just really grateful that we have folks like uh, our, our Premier of Alberta, who's, who is uh, speaking on our behalf, and also for folks like yourself that kind of say, we need a balanced conversation. And it really kind of goes to speak to myself is that the buck stops at Trudeau. And for him to stand up and, and uh, kind of soften, oh, he didn't quite mean that, he really must think Canadians really have their head yeah. in the sand. But yep. I just want to let you know, it is on everybody's radar. Thank you, Debbie. I appreciate the call. Thanks so much. Let's talk to Richard or hear from Richard in Vancouver. Richard. Roy, uh, good afternoon. Hi. And thanks again. I've listened to you many times on a Saturday afternoon. I must uh, commend you for the quality of journalism and debate that you bring into Thank really you. important topics in Canada. And um, I'd like to comment about the entertaining tap dance by our federal environment minister, too. And there's a couple of thoughts. I, I, I'm great at seeing correlations here. And I think that, you know, the liberals, by swinging and raising the green flag, are perhaps thinking to the next federal election where they want to exploit and get as many NDP votes as they can, right? And the other thing is, I noticed that in our country, that there's a, an incredible political divide between big cities and rural people and in their both in their voting patterns and their thinking, right? And I also got to thinking about and when you're talking about he was talking about uh the big cities and putting everybody's in towers. That's what he wants. That. A, That's what he wants. He wants us all living in tall towers. Yeah, well I I had a few friends back in the day and I thought they were this was like a conspiracy theory, but I don't know if you ever heard about this agenda twenty two thing. Yeah, but like I, I I'm sorry, um Richard, I appreciate your call very much, but we only have thirty seconds left for you, then I have to move on, okay? Yeah, okay. Well what I'm trying to say is that essentially that, you know, I think the NDP and liberal votes are really big in the big cities, and this is a lead up to the next federal election. Yeah, well, everything they're doing now. Thank you very much, Richard. Everything they're doing now is a lead up to the election because they're getting absolutely decimated in national polling. And you'll hear that when we talk to the vice president of Abacus in the next hour. Dan, uh, Mr. Gibault wants us to live in uh, tall towers. Reminds me of the Rhino Party's platform a few decades ago. Quebec, yes. Yeah, we'll just we'll just turn the CN Tower on its side, and we'll ride the elevators to work. But, 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 <laughs> but, but anyway, tower to climb. <laughs> so as you're listening, and you can hear the frustration, and the unhappiness, and the ridiculing of this environment minister from our callers across the country. Tell us again what you're thinking. You're the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Mr. Gibo is trying to do his best to make sure it's not affordable and that we get out of our cars and trucks and we live in those tall towers in the urban environment that he envisages as the panacea or the rescue of the planet. Yeah, the green re-engineering is a failure. It's a colossal failure. It wasn't going to work 30 years ago. It's not working for Europe. It's not going to work for Canadians. And I think there's some significant pushback 
what's interesting, though, my old colleague, uh, now uh, government house leader, Stephen McKinnon, is now quoted as saying today they're going to stick with their carbon taxes and all these other painful, unnecessary measures the federal government is taking, the clean fuel standard, uh, you uh, blocking pipelines, uh, forcing provinces to uh, heal to their uh, to their electrical mandates, etc. We, we can go through the whole list. But no, that's the end of all of this, Canadians aren't bored. It's, uh, it's no surprise that they are where they are in the minds of Canadians. And if you look at the polling, and again, we'll get this from Abacus, women are now or women have actually, in large numbers, turned to the Conservative Party. And that is not the usual theme of things in this country. Men, yes. Women, not so much. Women are doing that. And younger Canadians, the 18 to 34 demo, almost solidly conservative across the country. And this would all be over, Roy, if um, Jagmeet Singh could find a spine and uh, and call this government, as the previous NDP would have done. There's been, the Dan, country, Dan, Dan there's, the there's polling that shows the NDP leading the Liberals. He may not need Justin Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> well, the 29th of February is coming up really soon, and it'll be yeah, the 40th yeah, anniversary yeah. of his father taking uh, that long walk in the snow. Uh, I grow yeah. old, I grow old. <laughs> All right, tell us tell us this just before we go, and thank you so much for spending the time with us today. What's, what's the, where's, where's fuel price going over the next few months? Where's gasoline and diesel going? Up, up, and up. Oh. Diesel and gasoline and oil are all heading up, much higher than some people thought, uh, certainly higher than 2023. And, of course, uh, on the 1st of April, uh, 4.3 cent increase in diesel, 4 cent increase for gasoline. And, uh, of course, for Ontario and the prairies and uh, many other locations, you'll get what the Maritimes in British Columbia have had. That's the second carbon tax. So between now and 2030, as people think it's a long way down the road, look for about uh, 75 cents for diesel additional and an additional 62, 63 cents for gasoline. Uh, you better get those EVs very quickly or at least find a road to drive them on. Yeah. <laughs> no more envelopes. <laughs> oh, Thank you. an envelope for him. It's called a uh, pink slip. Yeah, uh, that's coming. <laughs> Not a good week for uh, Mr. Stephen Gilbo, the Environment and Climate Change Minister for Canada. Not a good week. In Montreal, at a conference, he said there'll be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network. Then he said, oh, I didn't say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you did. We, we can play it back for you. Well, I, I should have been. I should have been more clear. Okay, then, fine. Um, then he says, uh, "Yeah, we want to get Canadians out of their cars, and we want to get them into high density urban environments." Uh huh. Previously, he said he wants us all in electric vehicles. And then at the conference in Montreal, he said electric vehicles aren't the entire answer. The answer fits the day or the pair of socks he's wearing. No, wait a minute, that's the other guy. Uh, we're not going to keep our guest here for very long. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, he's the director of the Agri-Foods Lab at Dalhousie University, great friend of ours, often testifies at Parliament, knows that place inside out. How are you, Sylvain? Good, Roy. How are you? Well, good. I mean, I have so many pieces of information and so much audio from Mr. <laughs> Gubo. I don't know where to start but we do have what he said about you in Parliament earlier this week. Play it. 
I would like to remind the colleague opposite that in the Ag Committee uh, last week, uh, one of Canada's foremost experts on food policy, Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, said, and I, and I quote, and I quote, Madam Speaker, we don't see the evidence of that, talking about the impact of carbon pricing on food in Canada. He and, he, he, and actually, they invited him to speak at the Ag Committee, Madam Speaker, so I think we have it here. He's quoting you. Yes, he is, but he wasn't reading his notes. He should have, because I never said that. This is getting more and more strange. I um, I was uh, so I was actually in Ottawa on Wednesday, and when he said that, I was actually just a few blocks away from Parliament, and uh, I was actually giving a talk at the Western Hotel to a group of entrepreneurs, and my my phone was ringing off the hook while I was speaking. I obviously I didn't answer the phone until I left the event. And reporters were asking me, oh, uh, Mr. Gilbo actually quoted you uh, in, in the House of Commons. Uh, is, is, that, is that accurate? I said, I've never, I've never said that the carbon tax is not impacting food prices at all. What I've said on several occasions is that there's, no, there's not enough data or evidence to suggest um, either that the carbon tax is impacting, uh, is, is pushing food prices higher or lower. The, the problem is that uh, a lot of things can actually impact food prices. And, and frankly, grocers will do uh, a variety of different things to uh, remain competitive. For example, we're hearing more about the fact that some grocers are importing uh, beef from Mexico. Well, there's only one reason for that is that cane beef is too expensive. Uh, it's ungraded Mexican beef, but they're doing it to make, you know, to offer beef prices that are affordable to Canadians. And so that's why it's, it's a bit rich to suggest that the carbon tax is impacting retail prices at retail. However, what I did say, in and I wish that Mr. Gibble would have said that, is that I do believe that the carbon tax may impact our food industry's competitiveness over time. Because the focus should be on industrial prices, not retail prices. Has he called you since making that statement in Parliament and quoting you in Parliament? No, no, he has not contacted me at all, no. I don't expect him to do that because, as you mentioned uh, uh, in the opening, he's done this many, many times. Uh, He's actually has misquoted many people. Uh, this is the first time he's misquoted me. I, I've actually been cited three times in the last two weeks in Parliament, uh, once by uh, the Conservatives and twice by the Liberals. Uh, the first couple of times were accurate. Minister, Champ- Minister Champagne did mention that I was working with his group on food, uh, on food price stabilization, which is true. And the Conservatives also actually did cite me uh, in terms of what I think is going on with the carbon tax and what they say, they said, the House of Commons was actually accurate. But then along came Stephen. That's right, exactly. So I, I must say, I mean, I was a little bit uh, uh, perplexed by, by what he said because every now what, what's going on is that it just it supports a narrative or a false narrative. People are starting to believe that the carbon tax has no impact on food prices. Of course. In actuality, uh, the answer is more nuanced than that. Of course. There are people listening to this program right now across Canada, and all they've heard so far 
likely is Mr. Gilbo saying that you said the carbon tax does not impact food prices. That's right. If you actually look at the video, you can tell that he was just making things up as he went along because he wasn't even looking at his notes. He, he got so excited. Let's listen That's to him right. again. Let's listen to him again. Let's just listen to him again for just a second so that. I would like to remind the colleague opposite that in the Ag Committee uh, last week, uh, one of Canada's foremost experts on food policy, Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, said, and I, and I quote, and I quote, Madam Speaker, we don't see the evidence of that talking about the impact of carbon pricing on food in Canada. He and, he, he, and actually, they invited him to speak at the Ag Committees, Madam Speaker, so I think we have it here. I think he got too excited. Probably. I mean, I've never, I've never been an MP, and I have a lot of respect for for elected officials, to be honest. And when you stand up, now it's the Commons. I mean, a lot of things can happen, and there's a lot. Let's be honest. Yeah, a lot of heckling going on at the same time. So you may may have lost his train of thought as he was actually speaking. But at the end of the day, uh, this is a really sensitive issue. Uh, The carbon tax is absolutely political now, and so you have to be extremely careful. Uh, with how you cite researchers uh, when you talk about policy. The federal NDP is engaged in attempting to push legislation through Parliament to ban using force against children by adults in a supervisory position, including in schools across Canada, as well as parental spanking in the home. And that's going to second reading in Parliament. We talked about this on the air 30-plus years ago. It was a huge issue, extremely emotional responses, and it was particularly about a parent's right to spank. In 2004, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld what is known as Section 43 of the Criminal Code permitting corporal punishment under specific circumstances. Spanking must be used only for corrective purposes, The court ruled the child must be older than two years of age, not a teenager, when being spanked by a parent, and be able to understand why the punishment is being applied and that the spanking may not degrade the child. Also, the adult is not allowed to spank or otherwise corporally punish a child when the adult is in a state of anger. By the way, 1892 was when Section 43 was placed into the Canadian Criminal Code, 1892. Uh, teachers are not in favor. The Canadian Teachers Federation does not like this this bill by the NDP. Um, where else can we go with this? If, oh, yeah, there have been concerns expressed. And this was, well, I've heard it in the last couple of days, but I also heard it 30 years ago, that parents who spank their children should Section 43 be removed might face criminal charges, not only if they spank their child, but also if they buckle their child in a child car seat, if the child objects. There were all sorts of potential problems that were brought into the discussion. Uh, Even if Section 43 is removed, adults would still be permitted to use force against children in an emergency situation, goes this Bill 273. And then we can dig into the weeds and try to Try to define what an emergency situation is. We call Justin Trudeau in for that one. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer, media commentator. Always like to go to Ari for his thoughts and opinions 
on issues that are really uh, fundamental to the way we think and uh, get us all engaged. How are you, Marty? I'm great, and that was a good Justin Trudeau joke, by the way. I liked it. <laughs> it just came to me, you know. It just came to well, me. Well, it was it, it was a good one, but, you know, you've taken away some of the need for me today because you've explained the history of this, the law of it, going to the Supreme Court in 2004 quite well. This is essentially another aspect of the no-discipline party, uh, basically trying to fix a problem that doesn't exist. And for just your listeners to understand the history of this, there is no problem in Canada that requires this legislation. This all came from, and again, we live in a country that is absolutely choking on wokeness, an incident that happened at an Aboriginal or Indigenous school in the Yukon many, many years ago, and now as a result of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I won't get into, now the NDP tries to pick this up to say, Houston, we have a problem. The only problem that we'll have, Roy, and you know my view on this is very simple, if this bill being repealed is great for me, which it would be, I'll explain that in a moment, it's bad for Canada and Canadians. And what I mean by that, and a lot of your listeners, Roy, we always think wrongly that people are in nuclear families today. A mother, a father, 2.2 children. That's not the case. Why does that matter? Because right now we live in a society where there is very little discipline. We have teachers which I think has to be a part of this segment, Roy, leaving the profession in droves. And what they'll tell you is that there's a reason that they're leaving the profession in droves. It's not because of the pay. It's because of the violence, rowdiness, and unruliness that teachers face, particularly in Toronto, uh, where I practice most of the time, and they face significant violence. So that's the classroom part, that if a teacher touches a kid, restrains them, holds them, stops them even from hitting themselves or hitting a fellow student, they're now going to be exposed to criminal charges, which, as I said, is great for me and therefore bad for Canadians. The second part, Roy, which I think is just as important, is people will say, listening to me, well, look, if a parent spanks their kid in the privacy of their own home, even if this bill is repealed, there's no way the cops are going to charge them. They're not going to end up needing Ari Golkind. Wrong. I can tell you, Roy, right now that almost every criminal defense lawyer in Canada has numbers, dozens of cases where parents going through a custody dispute will hurl all sorts of either true or false accusations at the other parent as an attempt to get leverage in a family court proceeding. So if anybody doesn't think this will lead to people being charged criminally that should never be charged criminally, well, I can assure you then I know how the sausage is made, and this bill is completely problematic. And again, Roy, as somebody who doesn't think children should be hit, I am convinced that anything beyond a spank or maybe just a restraint probably screws a kid's mind up, my full disclosure bias at hand. This is a bill, Roy, that does absolutely nothing significant. And in fact, I think will give license to children and teenagers to be even worse than they already are. Yeah, it's the Children's Bill of Rights. That's how it's titled this particular piece of legislation. Ari, I remember, again, going back to the very beginnings of my discussions about this issue on the air, so that would be 30, 35 years ago. Uh, we had a call from a, a teacher, grade five teacher. I will never forget this call. And she said, we just moved. My family and I just moved. <laughs> 
we were too close to the school where I teach. Elementary school, grade five. Too close to the school where I teach 35 years ago. We moved so far away that the students in my class cannot reach us even on their bicycles because we're afraid of them 35 years ago. So let me comment on that, Roy, because I am very lucky enough to be friends and good friends with many teachers as a function of my age and my place in life. I just happen to be friends with a lot of teachers. And I can tell you, they have muzzled themselves. They have silenced themselves as Canada changes, as Toronto changes demographically and in every other way. Very few parents and particularly fathers left in the home. If you're a person who likes Bill Maher. This was a huge part of his show on Friday night, talking about certain people committing certain crimes. And you can link it all back to fatherlessness or no father in the home. That's factually true, whether people think it's third rail or not. These teachers, Roy, have faced very significant violence in certain Toronto schools. Their principals do not back them because if they do, they're worried about being called a certain word because the kids that are committing the violence are, let's just say, not Amish or Mennonite. And it is a very, very, very significant problem. And again, this affects all children. And just to your listeners, to go back to my bias, Roy, because my bias is no child should be attacked, assaulted, threatened. This is a problem, that this is a bill that doesn't fix anything because in 2004, and you mentioned this in our intro, so kudos to you for doing it, the Supreme Court laid out For everybody listening who agrees with me, or probably you, Roy, that says, look, no child should be roughed up, no child should be manhandled in any way that more than calms them down or keeps them from hurting themselves or others, the Supreme Court literally, in six very easy-to-read lines, said this is a crime if you do X, Y, A, B, C, D, E, F, which is what they were saying is, this is basically only a spank in the home to correct behavior. Or a teacher in a school who has a kid going absolutely bananas and just restrains them or uses very mild corporate punishment. This is, again, something that's very symptomatic of a society that seems to want to reward terrible behavior and assume that by singing Kumbaya, you impose discipline on particularly young boys who are so tripped up with testosterone that when there's nobody to say no to them, or correct that behavior, what do we think that kind of lack of correction is going to lead to? It's going to lead to all the other segments you and I, Roy, do every other week about carjacking, home invasion, violent crime, stabbings, and shootings. There is a through line there, and there is a connection. Yeah. And remember, again, the bill is called the Children's Bill of Rights. So it's inevitable. It's it's inevitable that the parent's going to be dragged in and the parent's going to be turned into the villain in any kind of legislation like this is brought forward by the New Democrats. That's right. Let's go to your calls for parents and for teachers on this NDP bill, 273. No spanking. That's what they're saying. What do you say? Should parents be continued to allow to spank? And if you're a teacher who's run into a difficult situation or a threatening situation, in the classroom or anywhere involving your students, we'd like to hear from you. 1-800-263-2428. Susan in Burnaby, British Columbia. Hi, Susan. Oh, hello. What a hornet's nest. So Roy, It is. It absolutely is. Parents have failed society. Hard stop. 
I mean, teachers, like that is crazy. And, and how kids are disrespectful. I have a 30-year-old and a 34-year-old, and I spent a lot of loving time with them. But my son, he was a little bit of a monkey. And if he didn't listen, I gave him a few chances. After that, you bet, I spanked him. He didn't leave a welt. It was just enough to say, hey, this is serious. You know, you you don't want to be spanked. You do as you're told. So was it was it, was it the equivalent of a... Uh, of a open hand on a clothed bottom? Oh, absolutely. You know, and he was in school the time that they were talking about good touch, bad touch. And I agree with that as far as abuse, like uh, sexual abuse. Of course. But he told me one day, he said, Mom, I'm going to tell the teachers that you spanked me. And I said, well, you better, you better think yeah, about it. Yeah, but you know. Um, you know, you could end up in a home that you don't even know the people. Exactly, Susan. Ridiculous. If this piece of legislation does pass... And a child goes to school and says, my parents spanked me. You know who would be at your door? Yeah. The police. That's ridiculous, right? The police. Yeah. And you could face criminal charges. Thank you for the call. Section 43. And we talked about this a couple of years ago as well. If you were to take your child, your small child, and, and, and push your child who may be fighting, you know, being a little kid, doesn't want to get in the car seat, and is fighting back, and you force your little kid into the car seat, that could lead to a visit from the police and charges laid against you. Should a parent have the right to spank? My mother used to spank me open hand, backside. I was a bit of a challenge as a kid. My dad had a way of talking to me that I, I always wanted to do exactly what he said, even if I didn't agree with it, because he had a different way of approaching things. My mother would, would tell me to do something, then she'd tell me again, then she'd tell me about 44 more times, and then she'd resort to the uh, open hand on the, on the backside. Uh, where are we going here? Robert. Robert in Hamilton. How are you, Robert? Very good. I just, we, we saw, saw a TV show as a family a while back, a long time ago when the kids were young, and it was about elephants. And what it was was a bunch of renegade teenage elephants. And they were killing the rhinoceros, ganging up with them and killing them. And what the solution was for, for this television show was they brought in a full bull. This was an elephant that would have been 40 years old. And it was huge. It was much bigger and everything like that. And he straightened out all the kids. And I told the kids at the time, I go, the bull elephant, that's me. Okay? You guys have got to listen. What did the, what did the kids say to that? The kids, they, they were, they're all, they're laughing at you your nose. And I go, no, no, you guys got to think. It's just, I do this because I know more than you right now in your lifetime. And I said, I love you more than any other thing, any other person. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to be on your side other than me when things are bad. Remember that. And the bottom line is, I said, if I'm going to punish you, I'm going to punish you. And I don't have to give an excuse for it. I don't whack you or beat you. And none of that happened in our family. But the bottom line is, is that kids, one, have to obey their parents. And we don't have enough fathers in the world that taking care of the kids. And that's one of the main problems. Robert, let me guess. Let me guess. You have a great relationship with your kids. I got no today. problem. I got no problem. President of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Kathleen Ross, who joined us not so long ago to talk about the difficulties our healthcare system finds itself in and doctors find themselves in. I have to tell you this. Before we get into our next discussion, I have to share this with you. I was just on X or Twitter 
And I, I, I don't know how I got to where I was, but I was looking at the f- a photograph of this guy sitting at a table, restaurant table, with this massive lobster in front of him. He's got his shades on and he's chowing down on, on this massive lobster. And I thought, what is the story here? So I read this. Touched down in Malaysia. I'm looking forward to a productive week of meetings with officials, industry leaders, and partners from Canada and the Indo-Pacific to promote our world-class products. Like the lobster I enjoyed for lunch in Kuala Lumpur. So this is from Lawrence McCauley, federal minister. I think it's agriculture. I'm not 100% sure. And I thought, you're in so much trouble with Canadians who are having so much difficulty paying for their, paying their bills, paying mortgages, paying rents, feeding themselves and feeding their families. It's not the greatest look to be in a fancy restaurant chowing down on a massive lobster, even if you say it's Canadian. It's, it's just... It's just not smart, Mr. Minister. Uh, I think I'll post that. I think I'll put that on my uh, X feed at the Roy Green Show. Or you can find it at uh, L Macaulay, M A C A U L A Y, at L underscore M A C A U L A Y. It's just not wise. It's, I don't care if it's Canadian or not. It wasn't free. It's the $18 glass of orange juice all over again. Okay, uh, National Pharmacare. We're going to talk about that this hour. Because the federal liberals and the New Democrats are attempting to negotiate a National Pharmacare program in order to keep their political alliance alive and prevent a snap election. And I got to thinking, you know, we've been waiting for, we've been talking about, we've been discussing... Uh, arguing for, arguing against a national pharmacare program for a long time. So, is the liberal NDP coalition, because that's what they are, it's a coalition government. Only Mr. Singh lets Mr. Trudeau get away with everything. But is it the sound basis for securing a pharmaceutical pharmacare program for Canadians? for securing pharmaceuticals for Canadians, dealing with the need for medications, including significant, even life-threatening illness. Would a national pharmacare program be funded sufficiently that the newest and most effective drugs for heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and other serious illnesses become and or remain unavailable? Or would a pharmacare bureaucracy be underfunded and overregulated to the point Pharmaceutical companies would not make the most recent and effective and expensive drugs available to Canada and Canadians. It costs money. And if you don't put enough money into the system, the pharmaceutical companies that spend massive amounts of money developing these cutting-edge medications are not going to give it to you. And so the citizens face the potential of having to be satisfied with 
medications that are years old. Something nobody talks about. It's all, oh yeah, we need a national pharmacare program. Look at it properly. Um, we're actually going to talk to two doctors this hour. And we'll begin with Dr. Sean Watley, past president of the Ontario Medical Association and author of When Politics Comes Before Patients. Sean, did you have lobster for lunch? I did not, sir. Oh, that's too bad. I didn't even have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have you with us. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Could you explain to us, please, what, what do we have in place now? How does the uh, pharmacare or pharma system work in this country at present time? Well, according to a survey in 2015, 70 to 80 percent of Canadians already have some form of uh, drug coverage, whether it's uh, public or private. And actually, 79 percent of those people are satisfied with the coverage they have. Only 7 percent are dissatisfied. So national pharmacare is really a gigantic Uber expensive, and we're talking, they estimate $15 billion, but even the parliamentary budget office has said it's going to be more like $30 billion, $28.5 billion. Some estimates as high as $52 billion a year. So a, a big boondoggle to fix a problem for a shrinking number of Canadians that could be fixed more effectively in a different way. Yeah, and I want to be clear that I asked Dr. Watley to join me on the air on this issue of pharmacare. It was not Dr. Watley approaching me for an interview. I asked him. And you can, uh, you can go to his website, seanwatley.com. That's S-H-A-W-N-W-H-A-T-L-E-Y.com. So we're, we're in reasonably good shape as far as medication is concerned. Now, New Zealand has uh, a national pharmacare program. And my understanding is that they, uh, they lag behind when it comes to the most cutting edge and new drugs that can actually help somebody who's in a very serious health condition. They have to use the older generations. That's my understanding. Could we find ourselves in that sort of position, or am I overstating things when I say we run the risk of underfunding what the pharmaceutical companies require in order to keep us on the cutting edge? No, absolutely. And and I apologize if I gave you the impression that we're in good shape in Canada. There's always opportunity to improve, especially when you start looking at drugs for rare uh, disorders. And so I could unpack um, why uh, pharmaceutical companies are actually avoiding Canada, not even bringing their drugs to market. And so there's a huge discussion there. So lots of opportunities to improve, but Pharmacare wouldn't fix that. And as a case in point, actually, so you bring up New Zealand and New Zealand has very severe price restrictions. And actually they pride themselves on that. They make a, a virtue out of blocking these high price drugs. But when you look at, again, when you're talking about the highest price drugs, it's usually drugs for rare disorders, life-threatening problems. And, and one recent study um, found that of the 460 publicly funded medications over the last 10 years available in the OECD, so in the, in the European countries, only 7% of them were available in New Zealand. So places like Hungary, Poland, Estonia, Turkey are getting these medications covered. People have them publicly funded, but not in New Zealand. And that's because New Zealand is so rigid about pushing pharmaceutical companies away and saying, listen, we're not paying a dollar over 
this asking price. And if you won't bring your price down, fine. Our population won't have access. 7%. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I, I hate to see anything that has to do with the health of Canadians being the focus of the survival of a political party's alliance. Yes. And, and so that you're getting to the issue of why are we even having this discussion? So this is all about the NDP liberal confidence and supply deal, right? That's what they're calling it, the confidence and supply deal. And the way you'll hear it floated is that all these patients have barriers to getting medications because they can't pay for them. We call that cost-related non-adherence. And that is a real thing. So some people don't get their medications because they don't even want to pay the copay. Okay, so that is a real issue. But to then leverage that and say, well, that's the cause of all medication non-adherence is just simply not the case. You've probably taken you know, blood pressure pills or antibiotics. And how many times do you miss a pill? So we forget or we're, we are, we're on too many medications already or we don't understand why we're taking a medication for so long. And it's a long list of reasons for why people don't take their medications. And simply marketing this as as the NDP solution to great health for everyone, it, it is not fair. So the economic argument is not there. The non-adherence issue is not there uh, in the way they're suggesting they're going to solve it. And so I can't help but wonder whether this isn't part of their ideological fo focus, which has been the case since the start. National PharmaCare has always been a key pillar for social medicine or state medicine. And this is a movement that's been around the world for the last hundred years. Yeah, it makes me look at your book title, not saying your book is about this, but your title, title of your book is When Politics Comes Before Patients. Exactly. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's, it's not about the patients. It's about the survival of the alliance and maybe winning an election that they have very little chance of winning. Um, who, who would run? this kind of pharmacare program and make decisions on what will and won't be covered, that's crucial. And speaking personally, I'd be alarmed if the same bureaucrats and bureaucracies which manage healthcare now were to manage pharmacare. Yeah. So that's a huge question. And they started asking that question actually in 2019. And they're suggesting that we're going to replace everything we have now with a new one-size-fits-all Canadian drug agency. And in fact, they struck a Canadian drug agency transition office, office and funded it with $35 million in 2019. And this office, the CD, uh, CDATO, has had over 300 meetings with provinces and territories and CAIHI and Canada Health Infoway, so a long list of people to try to figure out how they would even build pharmacare. Basically, what they'd have to do is take away or mothball all of the provincial and territorial drug plans, um, all of their data systems, all of their purchasing agreements, and try to come up with one big brand new system. And we could unpack the current five-step process that you have now, but it, it, is, it is gruesome that the message in Canada is try not to bring expensive drugs to market onto the public formulary because they cost money and we don't want to spend for them. Uh, how does it work now? You said five, is it, is it five, five, step. five steps? Yeah. What so are just they? Very, very, very briefly, number one, you have to get Health Canada regulatory approval. Other countries have incentives to get new drugs 
into that pipeline. So they'll fast track a new or an innovative medication. Canada has no incentive. Second step, health technology assessment. And what that is, is it's farmed out to CADETH or the Canadian Institute for Drug Technologies and Health. And they try to figure out how much money is this going to cost per life that we give you. So they call it an incremental cost estimate ratio. Very narrow, very simplistic, and the whole thing is not very transparent for patients. Third step is a pan-Canadian pharmaceutical alliance where they get a price negotiation. They bring everybody, all the provinces and territories together, and they negotiate with each pharmaceutical company on the particular drug. Very, very slow. It can take years. Fourth step is then each individual province drug plan will decide whether or not to list that medication if it had a positive health technology uh, um, assessment on their provincial formulary. So provincial formularies usually have about 5,000 medications listed. In in Ontario, there's an extra 1,000 that you can get with special access. The average retail plan has 12 to 14,000 medications. Then the final step in all this is something called the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board, or the PMPRB. And what they initially were created for was to protect patients against um, uh, abuse from uh, uh, monopolistic behavior and price gouging after the drugs were actually on the market. But in the last few years, they've transitioned to protect governments from having to actually pay for these new drugs. I could unpack more in each of those five steps, but it's a real rat's nest. So I received an email uh, last night from from a listener who has great interest in the pharmacare issue. And she lives with uh, serious health issues, very serious health issues. And her concern is that uh, if this national pharmacare program actually becomes law and uh, the bureaucracies take over and run it, that the medications that she's on, which are expensive, but keep her alive, may suddenly find themselves in um, disfavor with the bureaucracy because they cost so much, may suddenly find themselves off the availability list, and she would have to try to make do, and we touched on this earlier, but try to make do on medications that she knows already would not help her, or would it would it they might help her, but they wouldn't save her life. They wouldn't necessarily keep her alive as her current medications are doing. I, I won't joke about this either because my listeners know what I'm living with and uh, and so do you, Dr. Watley. And uh, I mean, I have some level of concern that the bureaucracies in this country might turn around and say, well, we can't, uh, we can't really afford to have this drug and this drug and this drug and this drug. Not that I'm on that many. But uh, they might say to about the one that I'm on, can't afford that anymore, give them what, they, what we used five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what nobody knows right now. They talk about essential drugs, but really, are they just saying the older, cheaper ones, or are they saying a bare bones list that some provinces have, or more like a retail plan? So to use a concrete example, look at cystic fibrosis patients, over 4,000 Canadians with cystic fibrosis. Um, The current drug that most people have been on is is something called Caladeco. Um, But there's a new one out that costs $300,000 a year called Trikafta. And the only way to get on that new drug is if you go through an, uh, an exceptional um, access program application. And the criteria for that is that you have to have 
untreated lung function that's less than 90%. So, so patients have to either take the risk of getting much worse by getting off of the older medication that they are on now, and hopefully they qualify for this new medication, or they just stay on the old one that they know is not as good because they won't be able to make, meet these you know, nitpicky criteria for the new medication that's out there. And I can give you other examples. Some of the new medications are multiple millions of dollars when you get into the gene therapy treatments for hemophilia. So $2.8 million for a one-time treatment that fixes you for the rest of your life is a lot less than $20 million for a lifetime of transfusions. But we're talking about big, big numbers. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, governments are really hesitant to pay those. Yeah. Um, the question is always about whether or not there's going to be discrimination against the poor, whether a national pharmacare program might actually level the playing field so the poor in our society can access exactly what the not-so-poor are accessing. Yeah, so great question about the poor. We also worry about the elderly. And so currently that those patient demographics aren't the ones that we're worried about. They already have coverage. Um, now you could make an argument that sometimes there are co-pays that people have to pay. For example, seniors in Ontario have to pay a small co-pay. And for some people, that can be a problem as well. So there are some gaps to fill there. The biggest gap that we're finding, and for most people who don't have any coverage at all, are in Ontario and in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's where we see the largest right. demographic. And what these people are is they're falling in between the poor and the seniors. Okay, so Dr. they're the working poor families. And Dr. So Watley, an opportunity to help them, but uh, I don't think a national pharmacare plan is the way to do it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.